You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. I'll be reading first in Korean and then in English. We do this occasionally so that we are reminded of our global faith. It's a glimpse into eternity when people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be gathered around God's throne, worshiping Him together. 의인이 형통하면 성읍이 즐거워하고, 악인이 패망하면 기뻐 외치느니라. 성읍은 정직한 자의 축복으로 인하여 진흥하고, 악한 자의 입으로 말미암아 무너지느니라. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. But by the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, summer's over, folks. And that means we come to the end of our series in the book of Proverbs, where we've been exploring various Proverbs that show us what it means to live a wise life. And we've defined wisdom pretty simply. We've said wisdom is the skill of living well. Just living well. And there's something unique about the passages that we're looking at today, because it shows us that living well isn't all about us. It's not all about you. It's about wisdom resulting in change in the lives and the places around us, having a much broader impact than we could have ever imagined as entire cities are changed through the wisdom that God is developing in us, his people. A couple named James and Deb Fallow took a little single-engine plane across the United States visiting cities and towns that were up and coming and experiencing revitalization for the sake of research. And as they, they traveled over 55,000 miles and as they visited these little towns, they asked a series of questions in order to understand some of the common themes and the patterns that were developing in these revitalized towns. And one of the first things that they asked when they got there was, who makes this town go? Who are the key players in the vitality of this town or the city. And what they found was interesting because sometimes it was business leaders, other times it was like a university president or a radio personality or even a bar owner. So it was a very wide variety of individuals in these different towns, but they said this, and this stood out to me. They said, what matters most was that the question had an answer that there was an identified person or group that caused the city to thrive. And the more quickly that the answer was provided, the better shape that the town was in. The Proverbs are casting a pretty amazing vision for us, that this could be us. Let me put a finer point on it. The Proverbs are casting a vision that this should be us. That when the righteous thrive, the city thrives. When the blessing of God is upon his people and flowing through his people, it brings joy and it brings benefit to the whole community. The city 
flourishes distinctly because believers are flourishing. That's the vision we see here in Proverbs. So we're going to look at this passage under three headings. We'll start here with the church thriving. Look with me again in verse 10. When it goes well with the righteous. Now that word doesn't really land very powerfully for us in the English. Oh, it's going pretty well. The word actually means thriving. In some of your translations, it actually reads thriving. When God's people are thriving. Now, because of our Western influence, when we hear that word thriving, some certain things come to mind, mostly physical prosperity. We think of health and we think of wealth. What's Modesto's like slogan? I just drove through it the other day. Yeah, that stuff. We think that kind of stuff. But thriving here is much broader, and it describes goodness, it describes joy, it describes beauty and health of relationships, which doesn't always line up with health and wealth. In fact, some of the most joyful and some of the most beautiful people in the world are those who have suffered significantly and lived most of their lives with very little. And the inverse is true as well. Some of the ugliest and some of the most unhappy people in the world are those who live in affluence and ease. So clearly thriving means that God's people have tapped into a deeper richness than simply wealth and health and success, something more satisfying, something more life-changing, something more compelling and beautiful. I've shared this story a few times over the years, but there was an artist, an artist named Makoto Fujimura, who tells a story of when he and his wife were first married. They were very poor. They barely had enough to make ends meet. And he shares this. He said, one evening I was sitting alone, waiting for Judy to come home to our apartment, worried about how we were going to afford rent and pay for necessities over the weekend. Our refrigerator was empty and we had no cash left. Then Judy walked in and she brought with her a bouquet of flowers that she had purchased. And I got very upset. How could you think of buying flowers when we can't even eat? I remember saying frustrated. Judy's reply has been etched in my heart for over 30 years now. She said, we need to feed our souls too. We need to feed our souls too. In other words, in that grind, and I know you know that grind, in that grind to survive, we cannot lose sight of beauty and the goodness that is available to us. And like many of us today, he had lost vision of what it means to truly thrive, of living out the abundance that comes into our lives when we trust God for his provision. He had forfeited beauty and goodness for our culture's metric of success. And it makes me think how many of us have as well. Now, another way of describing this wellness or this thriving is another biblical word that's translated in the English as peace, but the word is shalom. And a theologian named Cornelius Plantinga put it this way, in the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight. 
a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Shalom. So the author of Proverbs is getting us to imagine what it would look like to live into God's vision, the biblical vision of flourishing, where the goodness of God, his joy, his provision, his strength, his grace, his splendor are flowing into our lives, where we come and we open the hands, the empty hands of faith so that God may fill them with himself. So that God, who is a generous God, would give. The psalmist describes God like this in Psalm 145. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. God opens his hand and satisfies our desires. A few years back, maybe, gosh, over a decade ago, Michelle and I were celebrating an anniversary at a very nice restaurant. And it just happened to be the restaurant that her sister at the time worked at. And we're sitting there enjoying our meal. Her sister had talked to the manager and the manager comes over and tells us this amazing story that they were down in this old cellar, this wine cellar in the basement and someone was doing inventory and they were up on a ladder on the top rack and they reached back and they found something. They heard a clank and they reached back and it was an old bottle that had fallen back and was sort of out of sight. And they pulled it out and what they discovered was it was a rare, well-aged, expensive bottle of port, which is like a dessert wine. And he tells us that they have just recently opened it and they want to pour us a complimentary glass for our anniversary. And so they pour us this glass of port, which I didn't know what I was expecting, but it was literally the smallest glass I'd ever seen in my life. It was like, it, it was like what you're gonna get at communion. <laughs> and you know, I was taught as a kid, you know, you don't lick a, you lick a gift horse in the mouth or whatever. So we, it, was, it was great, every one swig of it. And, but really here, the, even the most generous gift was measured out very carefully. Why? Why? Because there was a very limited supply. But not so with God. God doesn't just give us his best, the Bible tells us, but Ephesians 1 says that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and that he has lavished I don't even think we have a good word for that other than just like showered us with undeserved favor, which is grace, and unending kindness where it just never stops pouring into our lives. Remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 23, my cup overflows. It just keeps overflowing and overflowing, and I need you to imagine that. Because maybe you can imagine that for someone else, but I think God wants you to imagine that for yourself today. My cup overflows. What would that look like? For the believer, our cup overflows because, and distinctly because, 
God's abundance overflows. We don't need to live with what's been called the scarcity mindset. Always concerned about limited here and limited this and limited resources. Or we don't need, need to live with that ongoing fear of discovering the bottom of our glass. Well, what if this happens? And what if this unforeseen circumstance happens? Why? Because we could never discover the bottom of God's abundance. And we could never discover the bottom of God's goodness. There is no end to the goodness and the grace that God desires to pour into our lives. The only limit is this. The only limit is what we're willing to receive. I love the way that Augustine put it. He said, God is always trying to give good things to us, but our hands are too full to receive them. I'm curious, maybe what are your hands full of this week? When our cup overflows... God's abundance overflows, and where it overflows is important here. It overflows into the lives of the people around us. Why would God desire for our cup to overflow? Well, Proverbs and elsewhere in the scriptures has told us it's because it pours over out of our lives into the lives of the people around us, which leads us to our second point. It is for the common good. For the common good. Look with me again in verse 10. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. Now this doesn't, or at least for me, this doesn't initially make a whole lot of sense. Everyone is celebrating when a certain group of people are doing well. We know people celebrate when they do well. But it's hard to imagine the whole city celebrating when a certain group of people do well. In fact, I think we are more inclined to celebrate when people fail, when people don't do well. We feel that certain sense of thrill, like, yeah, I saw that coming. But not when they succeed. For many today, we view thriving, again, through what I mentioned earlier, that scarcity mindset. Let me give you a few examples. When someone is doing well, well, that means that other people are losing out. Or when someone succeeds, well, it means that this group of people over here have failed. Well, if I have something, well, it means that there are a number of have-nots. Or if someone gets promoted in the office, well, everyone else is upset at them. Or if someone, in, you know, Dick and Connie's marriage is thriving 55 years in, everyone's like, they can't be that happy. They can't be that happy. No way. Right? Everyone wishes for the world to be a better place until it happens in the life of someone else. And you're like, wait a minute, I, I, I meant me. Let the world be a better place for me. Even as Christians, we are fairly good at weeping with those who weep, and we are absolutely lousy with rejoicing with those who rejoice. Why? Because we get jealous, and we get frustrated, and we get impatient with our own set of circumstances. Well, why hasn't that happened for me? Why isn't God blessing me like that? And so it's really hard to imagine. I mean, this is a mental strain here to imagine an entire city rejoicing when God's people are thriving. Unless, unless we actually understand what it means to be righteous. While righteousness has to do with moral uprightness, it has to do with personal character 
and integrity, it also, biblically speaking, has a social dimension. It also means being just. It means fairness. It means equity. It means upholding the rights on behalf of other people. So this describes those, yes, who have godly character, and that's absolutely vital, but it's also describing those who seek the common good, those who steward their own money, their own power, their own position, their experiences, their skills, their opportunities, their education, their relationships, their open doors, and whatever else God has given them, they steward those things for the sake of others. That's what it means to be righteous. In fact, the, the late Timothy Keller put it this way, the righteous in the book of Proverbs are by definition those who are willing to disadvantage themselves for the community, and this one's going to hurt, while the wicked are those who put their economic, social, and personal needs ahead of the community. How many times have we been told you've got to put yourself first? I don't know if he's right, that's wicked. So when God's people live righteously, they thrive in such a way that brings joy and benefit into the whole community. Everyone benefits when the righteous benefit. The Psalms give us an illustration of this in Psalm 84. It says this, blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways of Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. So a little bit of history. The Valley of Baca was a dry, desolate desert place. No life, no water, just dead. But God's people are envisioned as passing through it. And as they pass through this dry place, it's renewed into a garden-like place. A desolate place becomes a place spring with springs and teeming with life. They don't go into a place to exploit it. God's people don't move into a place to take and to mine it. By the way, if you were born and raised in California, that is in your bones. That's our history. We move into mine and to exploit and then to take. But God's people do the very opposite. They move into a space to bring the life of heaven into it. Or as humanity was originally commissioned in the days of Adam and Eve, God's people move into a space to Edenize it. To see garden life coming where death exists. This is something God has been doing through our church community. And one clear area that we have identified that God is doing this in and among us is in the area of education. We have an inordinate amount of educators in our church. I mean, we are blessed with the amount of educators we have in our church. Those who are stewarding their education, those who are stewarding their knowledge, those who are stewarding their open doors in order to help open doors for the next generation. Those who have disadvantaged themselves in a certain way by working in underserved schools, in overcrowded classrooms, in lower paying districts for the sake of young people. For the sake of young people. Verse 11 says, by the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted or lifted up. So I want us to think about this. God has blessed our community in so many ways. As I look around, I'm just reminded of all the stories of God's blessing among us. 
There are opportunities here. God has blessed us with financial resources. God has blessed us with very unique skill sets. God has blessed us with so much creative talent in just this small church community. But friends, we need to remember this, that God always blesses us in order to be a blessing to others. Why am I being blessed right now? The number one answer, the immediate answer is always going to be this, so that I can bless others. The New Testament tells us this in 2 Corinthians 9, and God is able, and don't forget that, How's this going to work? God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. God will enrich your life so that you can enrich the lives of the people around you. What's the picture here? We are being pictured as conduits of God's blessing. We all know the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. He's the source. He's the wellspring of blessing. But don't forget, we are the conduits. God's people are the the pipe system, so to speak. And it's through the church, that, that blessing, those blessings, the abundance, those torrents of God's grace, that lavish grace is now moving into the world around us through us. So our prayer should be this. Lord, let these gifts flow through our lives. May we be people who make dry valleys places of springs. May our blessings be stewarded to build others up. But even as I'm mentioning that, like we're getting a little bit tense, aren't we? Maybe we're thinking about all the ways that that's not possible. Well, you don't know my circumstance. And there's something innate in us, in the flesh, that just resists this. Somehow this isn't always the case. Often, in fact, our most natural tendency is not to seek the common good. Our most natural tendency is to consolidate our goods. To say that nasty little word we we learned very young, mine mine. Like Adam and Eve, we are surrounded by the abundance of God's goodness. I mean, how often do we just open our eyes and just acknowledge all the amazing things that God has done in our lives and all the amazing gifts he's surrounded us with, and yet it never seems to be enough, does it? We overlook the fact that everything that we've been given has been given from God. We look to our physical things in order to give us a sense of security and identity. And then we buy the lie of the serpent that he told our first parents. God is holding out on you. You can't trust him. He's holding out on you. But I'm here to tell you that the gospel shows us that God most certainly is not holding out on you. He is most certainly not holding out on you. In fact, again, in 2 Corinthians, we're told this, for you know, and you gotta know this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor, so that by his poverty, so that you by his poverty might become 
rich. So the whole, this whole pattern of lifting others up is really just the pattern of the gospel that has rescued us from our pit and destruction and has raised us up and has lifted us up with Jesus Christ. Who is the truly righteous one? It's Jesus. It's Jesus who disadvantaged himself for the sake of the community. It's Jesus who gave up everything, heaven, position, renown, comfort, even his own life on the cross so that we could be lifted out of our spiritual poverty, so that we could be lifted out of the debt of our sin and a future of death. And when Jesus flourished, when Jesus thrived in his resurrection, all those who trusted in Jesus were raised up with him so that we could thrive and we could flourish in his resurrection as well. Raised up and exalted in him. And the Bible says, hold your claps for this, <laughs> seated with him in the heavenly places. How high has he lifted us? Higher than the eye can see. Amen. That pattern begins with Jesus. But the Bible shows us that it's intended to continue through the church today. Of going low to bring others up and then exalting. Wendell Berry put it this way. We have lived our lives by the assumption that what was good for us would be good for the world. We have been wrong. We must change our lives so that it will be possible to live by the contrary assumption that what is good for the world will be good for us. And that requires that we make the effort to know the world and to learn what is good for it. What are we here doing? Praising God, feeding our souls, and learning what is good for the world. Let's look finally at this final point, the city rejoices. The city rejoices. Uh, verse 11. Uh, actually, verse 10. It's been like a long time since I've preached, so bear with me here. <laughs> How do you do this again? I pray the beginning. Okay. Verse 10. When it goes well with the righteous, what happens? The city rejoices, and when the wicked perish, there are what? Shouts of gladness. Say it like it's like an actual shout of gladness. Shouts of gladness, okay. So those words rejoice, that was very good. Shouts and praise and rejoicing, this has to do with triumph. This is not a golf clap. You need to put your golf clap away in church, folks. For real. This is a war chant. This is like Braveheart, blue paint on your face, Tear them up, kind of war chant, kind of stuff. You know what I mean? I, I, this is totally off script. There's this guy that thinks that I was in the military, and every time I see him, he says, hoorah! And I'm like, I don't know what to say back. <laughs> every time, every time. So I, I appreciate it. This is like the war chant of God's people. These words are so, I don't know why I shared that. These are the shout when a people would find out that there was a military victory in their place, that the old tyranny has been defeated and there's a new king in town. In fact, 
This is actually a tradition that has continued up until recently. When a king would die and a new king would take their place, the old king is dead. Long live the king. Long live the king. It meant the rise of a new kingdom, a new way of life has broken in that replaces the old. So let's connect the dots because this is amazing. The Proverbs are telling us that when God's people thrive in God's abundance and through that abundance seek the common good as the righteous ought to, that the city rejoices. It lifts up a shout of victory. Why? Because the righteous are demonstrating the triumph of a new king. Proclaiming through our lives and our actions, the old king is dead. Long live the king. Through changed lives by the Holy Spirit, we make it undeniably clear that God's new kingdom has broken through through Jesus. One that means joy and hope have broken in. One that makes the otherwise invisible kingdom of God visible in our midst. Think about this. When we live with gratitude, when we live thankful and joyful lives in the things that God has given us, not always concerned about the next thing, but pausing to be content with what we have, what are we doing? We are demonstrating a very generous God who gives us out of his abundance. And when we live open-handed and generous lives, what are we doing? We are proclaiming with our lives that the lying serpent is defeated. And when we live just lives, what are we doing? We are demonstrating that God transforms otherwise selfish, self-centered lives into lives of abundance that give, that the king who reigns also renews, that he changes our hearts, that he forgives us of our sins, and that he makes us a truly righteous people. And when we seek to promote others, we demonstrate the power of the resurrection of Jesus at work within us today. Earlier this year, I sat through an eighth grade promotion ceremony. And uh, it, it was painful. Not because it was an eighth grade promotion, I love that. But the topic was promoting. And the speaker just went on about what is the definition of promoting. And the main point was this. I mean, it was a clear main point. You need, as he spoke to these eighth graders, you need to promote yourself. Lift yourself up. Put your success, your, your success first. Put yourself first. And you know that this is not an isolated incident, by the way. Like entire generations are being told, do not anticipate anyone promoting you. You've got to do that for yourself. And just look around. We live in a world filled with self-promotion. I've got to make myself something. I've got to lift myself up. If I don't make my name known, no one else will. If I don't make my accomplishments known, no one else will. If I don't elevate myself, no one else will. But the good news of Jesus is that there is someone who will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves and ought not do for ourselves. One who lifts us up out of misery and exalts us with him. And as we're raised up with Christ, 
we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to lift others up with us on the way. What I want to do is I want to close um, from a passage in Ephesians. It's a long passage. And what, what I want you to do is just hear these words sort of just wash over you. Hear these words, allow them to draw your attention as we kind of transition into our time of response and singing. Let them lift your attention off of your life, your circumstances, your lack, and onto the abundance that's found in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter two says this. And you who were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, his poema, his creative rendering, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is my story, and that's your story as well. Amen? Let's give the Lord a hand. Let's pray. Father, that, that is...